This Sunday morning is what's called Palm Sunday. I hate to break the news to you, but it was probably on a Monday uh, chronologically, but if, if that messes up your chronology too much, let's just stick with Sunday. That's okay with me. Uh, we call it that in memory of the day Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem to a great crowd of people. Some, may say, some say as many as 200,000 to 250,000 people gathered there. It was the time of Passover, so it was a time where lots of people came into Jerusalem at that time. And everything was kind of coming together for this. Uh, Jesus was very popular with the people. He, uh, people were following him in great crowds. And there was an event that set that off uh, just a few weeks before. And really throughout his whole three years, a lot of miracles. Everybody knew about him. But then just a few weeks before, he raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. And the Gospel of John tells us that it was that specific event that led to these crowds just following him in his last weeks and days. And uh, they not only came to see Jesus when he entered Jerusalem and what we're calling the triumphal entry in Luke 19 here, but they were even just coming to see Lazarus. They wanted to see this man who had been raised from the dead. This, this was amazing. Jesus uh, comes in on a donkey. They, they lay clothes on the donkey and then before his path and palm branches on the path and they're waving palm branches. They're the Palm Sunday tie-in. And waving palm branches was a sign of joy. It was a sign of anticipation of the Messiah coming. It was a time of great excitement. And uh, they've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him raise the dead, uh, and Lazarus in particular. And word got around, and so much so that in the days leading up to his entrance to Jerusalem on his last week of his life on earth before, or before the cross, that uh, he had a hard time moving around. And you get see in Jericho, just a few days earlier even, he, he heals uh, a couple of blind men, including Bartimaeus. And a whole crowd of people saw that. And so that just adds to it, and it's all building up. And it comes to a fever pitch here. As he comes in on, on this donkey, everybody's excited. They're thinking, this could be it. This could be the long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament prophecy spoke of. This could be the king that's going to finally deliver us from Rome and the oppression of the Roman Empire. As I was trying to picture this scene this past week of this crowd and this excitement, I was thinking back to uh, what happens every four years in an Iowa, uh, you know, just because we're first in the nation status, whether that's, you consider that a good thing or a bad thing. But, the, you know, we have all the political candidates coming in, and there's political rallies everywhere, and, and some of these are big. I mean, you get thousands of people at some of these, and it, there's a lot of excitement. People are pumped up. Somebody comes out and talks up, stirs up the crowd, fires up the crowd, and then finally the candidate comes out and says some things with a lot of hope and optimism about the future and, and so about a new direction, a better future, and, and it's kind of exciting, you know. Uh, but maybe if uh, politics isn't your thing, uh, maybe sports. Uh, I've, I've been to some home Drake Bulldogs men's basketball games over the years here, and, you know, it's always a big deal when the Hawkeyes or Cyclones come to play. Uh, but there was one game in particular I remember that Jessalyn and I went to when they were on a 20-game win streak. And it was just kind of different, you know. You, you got there, and it, the place was full, and there was a lot of excitement and anticipation about what was going to happen. Are they going to continue the streak? But the word for it was just electric, you know. There was just a sense of energy in the air, and people were excited. And I kind of wondered, maybe that's a little bit what it felt like for these people. Just a couple hundred thousand people, quarter million people gathered here in excitement, which was a lot bigger than what the attendance is at a great game, but... 
uh, it was the, maybe the long-awaited Messiah coming in. And uh, it kind of makes you wonder why this kind of event didn't happen earlier. I mean, you think back to the time when he provided food for 5,000 men plus women and children, right? Just supernaturally transforming a small amount of bread and fish into enough to feed that a large crowd of people who had listened to his teaching all day long and were tired and hungry and needed food, and he did that for them. And, and you know what we read in the Gospels is that after that event, they wanted to take him and make him king by force. They did, they, and, but Jesus didn't want that. It wasn't his timing. Uh, I've thought of a few reasons why he didn't want to be recognized as the king, the Messiah, up to this point. One was just kind of a practical reason that he needed mobility. He needed to get around. If he was constantly thronged by a crowd, how could he effectively get around and travel and visit the cities and do his ministry? Uh, secondly, a spiritual reason that, that it wasn't God's timing. It wasn't his plan for him to rise to power, to become that ruler, to be that king they wanted at that time. And, and in fact, we know, because we know the Gospels and we're on this side of history, that his purpose in coming was to be that sacrificial lamb, to die for our sins, not to be the king of glory at that time, but to be that lamb of God. And then sometimes he stayed out of the limelight, I think, too, because he wanted to avoid early escalation with the leaders. The, the religious leaders, they, were, they had a death warrant out for Jesus. They, they wanted to see him arrested and tried and put to death. And so he didn't accept the praise and the adulation and, and seek to rise to power because he wanted to avoid that confrontation with them that would escalate that to that point. He was saving it for the right time. And the right time was this week, uh, Palm Sunday week. That's when God would set things in motion. And I think he really timed it perfectly in God's sovereignty. He did this so that the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the healing of the blind men and Jericho just days before would really just escalate things to the right point so that he would die a death on the cross on that Friday, on that Passover day, when the sacrificial lambs were being sacrificed. That was God's perfect timing. Now, to us uh, who believe, we, we understand that, but the disciples didn't get it. The crowd didn't get it. They just wanted to see a king rise to power. Even his own closest disciples didn't get it. You look back a chapter earlier, before Luke 19, in Luke chapter 18, in verse 31 to 34, some of Jesus' last words to him before this week were, says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be yeah, mocked and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. You know, for us who believe and understand and know, we're like, come on, guys. He's, this is like the third time he's told them that, and it's very direct, isn't it? It's like, come on, you knuckleheads, get it. He's going to Jerusalem. He says he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be put to shame and killed and, and then rise again on the third day. How, how complicated is that? But, I, but I'm sure, you know, giving them some credit, I'm sure seeing the miracles that they had seen, seeing the crowds and his teaching, they probably felt enamored with it and excited just like all the other people in that crowd and caught up in it. I'm sure if I was there, I might have felt the same way. You know, it's always a work of God to understand and believe, isn't it? God, through his Holy Spirit, is the one who opens our hearts and minds to understand 
and believe and receive it into our lives. Before Christ, you know, if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, or maybe even if you did, you can think of that time when this story of the gospel of Jesus, if you knew of it even, uh, wasn't real, it wasn't personal to you. But then there was a day when God, through his Holy Spirit, opened your mind and heart to believe and understand and receive the things of God. Now let's read our passage in Luke 19, verses 28 to 40 this morning, where this excitement and anticipation of Jesus is at a fever pitch. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent their way found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. My main point this morning to you is that God's plans are not always our plans, but God's plans are always perfect. God's plans are not always our plans, but God's plans are always perfect. Concerning man's plans and expectations, we've talked a little bit about that already. They wanted to make Jesus their king. They wanted a guy to deliver them from oppression from Rome. They wanted to see him as the fulfillment of the long-awaited Messiah who would come to rule and reign and crush their enemies. Uh, concerning Old Testament prophecies, now I haven't counted them all, but John Walford has. He's written a book of every prophecy in the Bible, and he's counted 333 Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. But it's kind of a mixed bag as to what you get in these prophecies. Some of them talk about him coming humbly, meek, a servant, to suffer and die and then to rise again. But then some of the prophecies talk about him coming in great power and glory to rule and reign over the earth and crush their enemies. And sometimes they're even in the same passage, in the same prophecy. So you can kind of understand how it's difficult maybe to discern the two. One of these prophecies comes from Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, that's awesome that these kind of details were given like that hundreds of years in advance. And we know that. The manuscript evidence is verifiable that the Old Testament prophecies were written before, at least a hundred years before the time of Christ. And this is literally fulfilled in what we just read here. Uh, I, I think it's pretty cool that, that Jesus knew in this passage, he knew where this donkey colt would be. He knew what the owner's response would be when they saw the disciples untying it. And he knew what they should say to the owners to assure him that it was the right thing and knew what the owner's response would be to bring him back. And, uh, and, and it would be in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
That's, that's pretty cool. It points to Jesus' omniscience. He knows everything. Uh, just think about the power of prophecy. This is my little tangent for the morning. <clears throat> Individually, every prophecy about Christ's birth and life and death, betrayal and resurrection, could be taken as coincidence. Individually, just looking at one of them. But altogether, there's no coincidence. Anyone can make predictions, but fulfilling them is another story. And I, I got a little illustration to share from uh, a man named David Williams uh, from the mathematics faculty at University of Newcastle. And he, made, he wrote this. Anyone can make predictions. Having those prophecies fulfilled is vastly different. In fact, the more statements made about the future and the more detail, then the less likely the precise fulfillment will be. For example, what's the likelihood of a person predicting today the exact city in which the birth of a future leader would take place well into the 21st century. This is indeed what the prophet Micah did 700 years before the Messiah. Further, what is the likelihood of predicting the precise manner of death that a new, unknown religious leader would experience a thousand years from now? A manner of death presently unknown and to remain unknown for hundreds of years. Yet this is what David did in 1000 B.C., he goes on to say again, what is the likelihood of predicting the specific date of the appearance of some great future leader? Hundreds of years in advance. This is what Daniel did 500 years in advance. And you read Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27. It says, from the decree of Artaxerxes till the Messiah is cut off, it will be 483 years. And indeed, that's what we find in history. That's powerful. He says, if, you, if one were to conceive 50 specific prophecies about a person in the future whom one would never meet, just what's the likelihood that this person would fulfill all 50 of the predictions? How much less would this likelihood be if 25 of these predictions were about what other people would do to him and were completely beyond his control? For example, how does someone arrange to be born in a specific family? How does one arrange to be born in a specified city in which their parents don't actually live? How does one arrange their own death? to have their executioners gamble for his clothing? And how does one arrange to be betrayed in advance? How does one arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs on the two victims of each side, but not his own? And finally, how does one arrange to be God, to die and rise again from the grave? Indeed, it may be possible, he says, for someone to fake one or two of the messianic prophecies, but it would be impossible for any one person to arrange and fulfill all of these prophecies. You know, prophecy is a powerful proof that this Bible, the book we have that we call the Word of God, is not just a book of man, but it is a supernatural book of God. And the prophecies speak powerfully to that. Now back to our passage. This was a humble coronation. Sounds amazing, and it was, but riding on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey, uh, was a humble way to come. That's what Zechariah 9.9 says. They placed their coats on the donkey. It was, a, it was a donkey that had never been ridden on. That was important. They considered an unridden animal, animal like that uh, better suited for special purposes like this. And then they laid their coats down on the ground and palm branches on the ground in front of him for the donkey to ride over. And that was a symbolic way of saying, this is a person of royalty. We're placing ourselves under this person. This, we're giving this person honor. He's not coming in to set up his kingdom on earth. He's not coming in to be a king who rules and conquers his enemies, his plan was to be a different kind of king. He's coming in humbly on the donkey. His plan was to suffer and die and to meet the greatest need the people had. The need they thought they had was that a Messiah would rise up to deliver them from 
other countries like Rome. But God's plan was about meeting a need that was more important than having a ruler like that. His plan was that they would have, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That was God's plan. Parades. I've been to many parades. My favorite is in my hometown of Norwalk. And, uh, you know, you, you, it's short. Well, it's about the right length, you know, and it's just kind of fun being at your hometown parade. Now, if you go to the downtown Des Moines parade, the St. Patrick's Day parade, that thing is long. Uh, you could go to lunch and come back and still have a lot, enough parade to satisfy your need for it. It's like two hours long, you know. Um, and you see someone riding someone important riding up in the car and they're waving and people are waving back. Uh, but you know, I've never been to a procession like this that we're seeing here with people shouting and singing and laying down their clothes in front of that important person. Never seen anything like that. That's something special. And then you notice the praise and adoration they give. I mean, everything is just at a fever pitch and they're waving their palm branches and they cut them down from the many date palms in that area, and they're waving them, and they're bursting into shouts and singing. Verses 37 to 38 say, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And that praise there actually comes directly from Psalm 118, verse 26. And other gospel accounts record them also shouting out, Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna means save now. That phrase there that they shout, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, brought me back to Luke chapter 2. I was thinking back to, you know, when the angels appeared to the shepherds declaring the birth of the Christ to them out in the field at night, how they said that very same thing. The people here are hailing Jesus as the Messiah. This is messianic praise. That psalm is a psalm of salvation, a psalm of coronation, and that's exactly what they're doing here. But it's interesting that in the midst of all that praise, there's some bad dudes in the crowd. There's some that didn't like this at all. Jesus being praised as Messiah was offensive to them. And they call out to him. The Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, demanding he rebuke his disciples from offering him that worshipful praise. Now, I'm not sure what they expected. I mean, it's not like I wouldn't think they would expect Jesus to turn around and say, thanks, guys, that was great. You know, take it down a notch. <laughs> uh, this was his response, though, and it's very interesting. He tells them in verse 40 that even if they were silent, the stones would cry out. And what did he mean by that? Um, geodes. I, I, uh, this passage kind of makes me think of our state rock, the geode. You know, you can go find these out. I just remember a time as a boy that I, every summer I got to spend a week with each of my grandmas. That was very special. And on one of those occasions with my granny in Waterloo, that she let me and my older cousin spend a few days at her good friend's farm. And you get into a lot of fun things in a farm with a couple of boys. <laughs> but uh, one of the things we did, they, it was pretty cool. They took us out to the countryside on a country road. And uh, the, where they knew that there would be geodes, lots of them, in this ditch along the country road. So we got to pick up several of these and take them back, and they carefully chiseled them open. And what's so cool is that this is a very ordinary-looking rock. But then when you split it open, it's very beautiful. Uh, it's hollow inside, and it's lined with quartz crystals. And uh, so this passage kind of makes me think about that, you know, that just inside this rock, just kind of open it up, the praise 
the glory of God. And when I think of uh, Jesus saying this, I, I think of those rocks. You know, you, you split them open, you see their inner beauty. And uh, I, I also think of the day when Jesus was crucified. There were some supernatural things that happened in nature the day he was crucified. Can you remember? that the, dark, the sky went dark for three hours. There was a great earthquake, and the rocks split open. I, I wonder if that was even a fulfillment of what Jesus was saying here, that the rocks bring praise to his glory. Many scriptures testify that nature itself speaks to the glory of God. And we could share several of those, but it's everywhere we look. One of my favorite places to look is the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. So if ever there was a place to see the glory of God in nature, it's the Rocky Mountains. And I remember being there just a few years ago for my Grandma Klein's funeral. And the Sunday morning we attended church services. We were at a church where the side of the building in Colorado Springs there that was facing Pikes Peak was a, an enormous window. They, they must have done that on purpose to speak to the glory of God. Now, to them who were there, that novelty must have worn off. They were all just looking straight ahead, focused on the preacher, but I couldn't pay attention to the preacher because there was this giant window on one whole wall of the sanctuary facing Pike's Peak. And I was just thinking in my mind and heart how majestic our God is, how nature speaks to the glory of God. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He says, even if the people's voices of praise are silenced, the rocks would cry out, even the simple rocks. I don't know if they would have been geodes, but that would have been cool. But I believe that just means that nature is always crying out. Nature always cries out and declares the glory and the beauty of God, whether people praise God or not. Now, uh, God's plans are not always our plans, but his plans are always perfect. What, didn't, what they didn't realize was that God's plan was for Jesus not to be the king of glory in his first coming, but to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, to be the man who was alone and in agony, as Psalm 22 describes. That's, that's what God's plan was, for him to be betrayed by one of his best friends, Judas Iscariot, to be wrongfully tried and shamefully tried through six trials throughout the night and morning leading up to his crucifixion, and then to him, for him to be put to death in the worst of ways, in a way that was reserved for the worst of criminals, a crucifixion. It was also he could be our sin bearer. He was a king, but not the king, a kind of king they expected and not the kind of king we needed at that time. What we needed was a king who would make it possible for us to have a right relationship with God. And the only way to accomplish that was through his death on the cross, where he bore the sin and judgment and wrath of God that we deserved. That's the kind of king we needed. And as those lambs were being sacrificed that Passover Friday, Jesus too, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, was being sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Jesus, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Isn't that kind of a cool thought? Now, one interesting thing is that Jesus literally fulfilled 100 of those 333 prophecies in his first coming. There's a lot left to be fulfilled that speak of his power and glory and majesty and rule and reign and crushing his enemies. And so just as all those prophecies were fulfilled in his first coming, so they will be fulfilled in his second coming. In this first coming, he rode in on a lowly donkey, humble and meek, to be a suffering servant, to die for our sins. But when you look at the end of the book in Revelation 19 and 20, we see Christ returning again as a victorious war hero to conquer his enemies, to reign and rule on the earth. And what a glorious day that will be. 
I hope some of these thoughts have uplifted your heart this morning, and I just want to offer the rest of our time of worship to the Lord now. Our Heavenly Father, I just thank you and praise you uh, for all you have done for us. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet you, weren't, you didn't receive that glory in your first coming. Your plan was not the people's plans, what they wanted, what they expected, but your plan was perfect. It always is. And you so sovereignly led in all these events so that Jesus would be sacrificed on Passover day as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Uh, we just lift up praise and glory to your name, and, and we do look forward to that day when he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, his robe dipped in blood with the blood of his enemies, and rule and reign on the earth uh, in a great kingdom, the greatest kingdom that this world will have ever seen. And uh, Lord, I just pray for everyone here this morning that our hearts would be full of joy as we kind of figuratively wave our palm branches this morning in celebration of all you've done for us. Uh, all glory to Jesus. And if someone's been... Uh, uh, and depression or, or suffering or life circumstances have been hard, Lord, may this message be a message of encouragement and joy for them this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm just going to give a little devotional before we approach the table. So if you all want to open up to Luke, hopefully you are already there because Mark was just in chapter 19. So we're going to just fast forward a little bit to Luke chapter 22. As Mark said this morning, God's plans are not always our plans, but they are always perfect. So let's go ahead and start reading. In chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 14. So it says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and, giving th and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which was given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the son of man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue amongst themselves which of them it would be who is going to do this thing. So the first thing we see in chapter 22 here is that he says, when the hour had come, Jesus said, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So this fervently or with great desire, this longing that Jesus had, Jesus knew the anguish that he was going to be going through, yet he wasn't thinking about that yet, right? He was longing and had this desire to eat with his disciples, to break this bread, to experience this Passover feast with them one last time before he's going to be taken to the cross. And then we go to verse 16. So it says, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes we hear phrases of, I am going to not do this, or I'm going to do this 
and it's kind of like a fulfillment. It's another kind of prophecy or uh, a covenant. So Jesus is saying that what he is going to do, he's going to die on the cross. He is going to accomplish what he set out to do. So he's telling his disciples, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Yet the disciples don't understand this, right? So he told them back in Luke 18, as Mark was saying, that he's going to die on the cross Yet the disciples did not understand what he was saying. Jesus is saying now, just as he has told them, he will not eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The disciples are still missing the point. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. We see kind of, again, Jesus pressing this point. He's going to accomplish what he's going to do, and he's not going to drink of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There would have been someone leading this Passover feast. And at this point, we know that Jesus is the one leading the disciples through it because he's taking the cup, he's leading them through it. So in verse 19, it says, He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, as good Jews like these disciples would have been, they would have known what this bread symbolized. But many of you here this morning might not be Jewish, so it might be proper to look and see what Jesus is talking about with this bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is what is happening now. It's the Passover feast. So unleavened simply means that there would be no yeast or rising agent or leavening agent in the bread. So for those of you that are bakers, you probably already know this, but if you're not, that's what it means. So the bread would represent the exodus from Egypt as the Israelites or these Jews would have known it. So the story goes that they exited Egypt so fast that they didn't have time to put leavening agents in their bread. So thus the feast of unleavened bread. It was also known as the bread of the affliction of their fathers in the desert. So it's the bread of the affliction or suffering. So Jesus is saying, this bread is my affliction, my suffering, broken for you, take this in remembrance of me. Yet the disciples don't see it, that Jesus is saying, I'm about ready to go through immense pain and suffering. They're still missing the point. Then we see In verse 21, he says, In the same way he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. I didn't know this until I kind of looked into it, but there's four cups at the Passover feast. So uh, the four cups were symbolic of four very different things. The first cup means I will take you out. It was God saying, I will take you out of Egypt. The second one is, I will save you. The third is, I will redeem you. And the fourth is, I will take you as a nation. All promises of God to claim. Most theologians would agree that he's now talking about the second cup, as he already had the first cup previously. You know, he said in verse verse 17, uh, take this and share amongst yourself. That would have supposedly been the first cup. So now we're at the second cup. And the second cup means I will save you. So Jesus is giving them the cup that says, I will save you. This is my blood. Drink and remember of me. Yet the disciples are still missing the point. He's saying, I'm going to save you, but he has to die and suffer first. Yet the disciples still are not understanding what's going on. So then we see in verses 21 through 23, the one that is going to betray Jesus that we know on this side of the cross is going to be Judas, right? And the time of communion, this feast, should have been focused all on Jesus because Jesus is going to be the perfect Passover lamb 
that these Jews should have known. But instead of focusing on Jesus after he said all this, they're focusing on the one who is going to betray them. Again, missing the point that Jesus is trying to tell them during this Passover feast. The disciples started arguing amongst themselves who it was going to be. And I won't go into verses 24 and on, but just know that after they argued about who was going to betray Jesus, they started arguing about who is going to be the greatest among them. So again, the disciples aren't getting it. So church, this morning as we approach the communion table, let us not be like the disciples and miss the point that Jesus is clearly pointing out to us. Let us take this opportunity to reflect on the marriage supper of the lamb or communion as we know it. And let's focus on three things. Jesus has come to save us. Let's give him thanks. Let's recognize that as we approach this table and we take the bread and we take the cup in remembrance of him. And then second, though there was going to be momentary afflictions, there came infinite glory, which is bestowed on us because of our faith in Jesus. Let's give thanks for that. Let us remember that as we approach the table. And finally, I think we should remember that God's plans are not always our plans, but they are always perfect. As we take this cup and this bread, we know that God was not coming to establish his kingdom on earth as the disciples were wanting, but he was saying, I am going to return. So as we take it, let us yearn for Jesus's second coming where he's going to take away all pain, suffering, and sorrow as promised in the book of Revelation. So let's bow our heads and pray now and let's then break this bread and then remember why we are taking it. Father God, we approach you this morning knowing that you are infinitely better than we could possibly ask or imagine. God, your plans, your your ways are above our ways, above anything that we could think, God, but let us trust you knowing that your ways are infinitely greater than our ways. God, as we approach this table this morning, let us look, as we look in the book of Revelation, God, that you said that you will return, you will wipe every tear from our eye. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, and you will reign in your kingdom forever. We ask this in your name, amen.